Hello, this is Past Caring, a podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reid and I work on the RCN's public events and exhibitions. Our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries. This is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. This episode is about mental health nursing. Later, we'll hear from the historian, Dr. Claire Chatterton, about the history of mental health care, from the smaller so-called madhouses to large asylums in the 19th century. And we'll hear a conversation with the artist, Sarah Carpenter, who's been creating work with nurses in hospital settings. But first, I spoke to Simon Arde and Kojo Bonsu. Simon is a mental health nurse. He's the mental health network manager at a large NHS trust, and he's also the RCN's expert representative for parity of esteem, which is the principle that mental health should receive equal priority with physical health. Kojo Bonsu is a peer involvement worker, and I asked him how he came to be in this role. I started out working in collaboration with the involvement team whilst I was still a patient, whereby we were discussing um, the BME experience within mental health and um, how we could improve the experiences. So I was contributing a lot of ideas whilst being a patient on the ward. And I stayed in touch with the people that I was working with. And when I was released, um, I applied for a job as a peer involvement worker. So I transitioned to being a part of the involvement team, which is all about encouraging co-production and collaboration with patients and the actual trust. And also what's interesting about you, I guess, is that you have seen like both sides of the coin, as it were. So you've been you've been somebody with lived experience and then now you're helping other people from the mental health care side as well. Yeah. If you're comfortable to, could you tell us a bit about why you ended up being a patient in the first place? Um, well, I've been involved in mental health um, since 2016. A lot of it was to do with bereavement and traumas that caused insomnia and that insomnia caused me to have manic episodes. So since 2016, I was in and out of acute services. And then later on, I ended up in um, a forensic unit. And yeah, that's when I came in touch with the involvement team. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kojo. And some of the experiences of care that you had were, I think, unfair is putting it lightly, isn't it, really? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I wonder about now you working in the role that you do, how you now look back on that time and think that the healthcare professionals that you came into contact with could have done it differently. Yeah, I actually ended up in a forensic unit because I was seeking medication when I was in the community to take me out of a manic episode because I had a family member who was in the process of passing away and that put me into a manic episode. So I made over eight eight or nine attempts 
at different A&Es across three different hospitals. I experienced a lot of backlash from the security and from the police. I believe I was stereotyped. I was arrested many times and um, I was manhandled a number of times. And unfortunately, in my last attempt to get help, I was um, confronted by eight or nine police with tasers. So I was tasered twice and I was attacked with like truncheons and stuff like that. But in that process, I defended myself and in defending myself, I was given a charge and I was sent to prison. And ironically, the people in prison saw me for my mental health, but the people in the community treated me like a criminal. So when I ended up in prison, they actually cared for me and moved me to the forensic unit because they saw that my issue wasn't that of criminal intent, but actual mental mental health. That's the negative side of things. But the positive side of things is that um, when I ended up in the trust that I was with, they did a lot to empower me. I ended up collaborating with the involvement team and working with the BME Burdett programme and looking at things from a fresh perspective of what can we do to change things and improve things. I had a very good clinician who took my concerns into consideration. So um, culturally, they were very adaptive. My clinician was actually a black man and um, I felt like he understood me more and he gave me the opportunities, like provisions were made. So I was able to attend a lot of teams meetings and um, have my voice heard. So that was very empowering. And um, working with the involvement team has been really empowering and really rewarding, being able to help people in similar positions that I was in in the past. Simon, when you listen to Kojo's experience, I wonder if, I don't know what the word for it is really, do you see this happening all the time? Is it surprising to you? Is it still something that, needs to to change what is changing I guess yeah how do you feel about about that as a nurse so I I think I've worked in mental health my entire working life pretty much and I think sadly what Kojo is describing and and that experience and, and kind of the the delay in support whether that's from people not recognizing they need support or in this case people asking for support and being denied it is something that is unfortunately it feels like it's commonplace and and more so than than ever in in the kind of history of the mental health act we've got more black males detained the kind of stats and facts are out there and they they don't lie to you but i think what gets me is is kind of hearing these stories and and being part of teams that have maybe as a as a result of kind of a lot of systemic issues haven't given a kind of like a humane experience to to someone who needs it. Yeah, that's not uncommon for black males. Like I think um, from a societal standpoint, there are kind of systems and factors that disadvantage some people. That's going to, to kind of play out and it's going to be reflected in healthcare. And they tend to kind of perpetuate one another like when people are marginalised or when they, they feel marginalised or, or less part of something, 
they're likely to be less inclined to kind of have a good relationship with it. And, and that's a relationship that is generational. Like, I, I think back to like some of the kind of lessons and stories my parents taught me and my parents both emigrated here from Ghana in the 70s and their relationship to the state is made up of those experiences and some of those experiences have been the foundations for lessons that my brothers and I have been taught and 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 that's also impacted the way in which we interact with the state and, and so forth and so I think recognizing that those experiences don't just stop at the person and actually there there is a lot of potential for that kind of generational trauma to to continue is is important and I think despite that it fills me with um like hope like here in Kojo talk about that actually yes there were negative experiences but there were also kind of positive experiences and I hope that there's an opportunity for for more people where they've had that negativity or that darkness to experience some of the light and, and be able to kind of talk about that and kind of hand that down to the next generation or people that, that come after them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you for describing that sort of the generational aspect of that so well. And I think it links back to a phrase that you use, Kojo, which was culturally adaptive which I think is such an interesting phrase and also something that you would never think about until it's not there for somebody. Kojo, could you expand a little bit on what that felt like to you, to see culture or familiarity among the people that were caring for you? Yeah, I think um, what I, what I did notice is, is that a lot of the people that were around me on the ward, I'm talking about staff, did come from similar backgrounds to me. I mean, a lot of them were of black descent and black heritage, but I feel like they were in a position that was a bit difficult for them to help me in ways that they knew would work because this infrastructure doesn't have that cultural adaptiveness naturally. And it's almost like they would have to go against the grain to help me. It's almost as if their hands were tied there's only so much of themselves that they're able to bring to work. So I was lucky in the end to have a clinician that was flexible in the in, and understanding near the end of my forensic experience. But at the beginning, you know, you're surrounded with people that look like you, but they can't really help you in the way that they want to. Um, because their their positions are not decision making positions; they're more enforcing enforcement positions. So you know they they're more likely to be the ones to end up restraining you um, on the orders of higher band nurses or clinicians. But maybe they 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 have insights that could change that from happening. But a lot of them don't use their voice because they don't want to jeopardize their positions. So mm. you know it'll be it'll be good yeah, it'll yeah. be good to see um, people of cultural backgrounds in higher positions because that's when um, changes mm. can be made and decisions can be made that are more emotionally and culturally intelligent. Mm. And I think that's where the yeah. change would come. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you, Kojo. So many things that you're saying are making me think about so many 
what it what it means to kind of work in care, I guess, and caring for people. And Simon, you've spoken before about, I guess, authenticity and bringing self to work. And I do sometimes wonder in the few years that I've been working with nurses and meeting nurses, I often wonder like how much of your work is your authentic self at work and how much of it is the professional, the skilled, trained professional? And how do you get that balance right? And I wonder if that's something you think about as a nurse. Um, I, I think about it often. And um, I think the, the, the type of work that all nurses do, and particularly mental health nurses do, I think that there's so much of your kind of personhood that you bring to your practice. And I remember like times when I have mentored students and particularly as they're getting towards the end of, of their, their training, like me encouraging them to kind of find aspects of their personality that will enrich the work that they're doing. So I, I'd like to think, depending on who you ask, that I'm quite organised and, and meticulous. And, and and those are aspects that of myself that I bring to my work. Like I, I try to make sure I've covered all the bases. I, I try to make sure I, I give people the, the time that, that they need. Like I, I'm I'm not... The, the funniest person but I've got a, a couple of friends who are, who are naturally quite charismatic and naturally quite funny and put people at ease and I encourage them to bring that to, to their work as best as they can to kind of put that as part of their skills and, and I think it, it feels like there's a, a kind of accepted level of authenticity and again I think it comes back to what the rest of the system sees as normative. And if, you, if you're coming from a place where the way in which you walk, the way in which you talk, the way in which you dress, just culturally is, is different, in order to, to thrive in a system that isn't set up to, to kind of support that diversity or, or appreciate that diversity, you almost have to kind of assimilate and you have to kind of peel away aspects of yourself and it makes the work really difficult because there are definitely times in my own career where I felt like almost a bit like it's a strong word but a bit fraudulent I'm like I'm not working in a way that I I recognize as myself and and I think sometimes that's particularly in the last couple of years that has um, impacted decisions that I've made in terms of what type of jobs I've gone for or, or kind of what kind of roles because I had to ask myself okay how much of you can you actually bring to this how much of yourself are you going to have to sort of sacrifice or, or to pretend doesn't exist in order to kind of thrive and, and is that the way you want to, to kind of be working and I think it's like as as Kojo said like it's sometimes when you're working at a kind of lower banding or you're in a kind of more junior role it does sometimes feel like your hands are tied and actually being able to kind of find your voice or to kind of advocate for things that feel right and you kind of know to be right and not necessarily based on the skills you've learned in your training or the evidence-based practices, but things that you know to be right for experience, experience of your peers through kind of culturally and, and being able to kind of advocate for things like that. I think it takes a lot of internal strength and it, and it takes a lot of um, resolve. Like I, I think I have probably done it less times than I would have wanted to throughout my 10 plus years sort of working in, in mental health. 
but it is something that I now endeavour to try and do. And and it doesn't always feel comfortable. And I and I think that's a good thing. Like um being comfortable all the time, for me anyway, it doesn't spur me on. I think when I'm uncomfortable, it feels like I'm challenging myself or I'm sort of challenging something. And sometimes being the only voice or, or the only person of colour in a room and speaking to what's quite palpable and what people recognise, yeah, the, the, there's a lot that can come from that. And I think the more people move into positions, as Koja was saying, where they can impact decisions, they can impact the system and really kind of agitate, the, I think the more there is a responsibility for people to take up those spaces and to kind of advocate for the things that, that kind of cultural awareness, that, that makes sense. Simon Arde and Kojo Bonsu. My next guest, Dr. Claire Chatterton, has a clinical background in nursing and is now a healthcare historian, researcher, lecturer and all-round nursing history expert. Much of her research is focused on the history and development of mental health nursing. Claire began by telling us about the 19th century institutions built to care for those with mental health needs. Well, at the beginning of the 19th century, nurses were actually known as keepers, which seems a rather strange name to us now, I think. But in a way, it says quite a lot about what they were doing, which is kind of containing people, really. There weren't the large mental asylums, to use the terminology at the time, that we became used to. They were small institutions, some privately funded, some charitably funded. And there were also lots of little madhouses. And that was literally what they were called, sort of private, sometimes money-making schemes, where people offered to contain relatives, friends who were deemed to be mentally ill and then employed keepers to contain them. And then as the 19th century progressed, attitudes began to change towards those we'd now think of as mentally ill. And there was the beginnings of an asylum movement to provide asylum in the true sense of the word for people who were unwell. There was a a move towards moral management, the idea that patients should be looked after kindly, not contained and sort of imprisoned and where restraint was used, where they should be encouraged to work on farms and in gardens, maybe do sewing, kept occupied, but also attended to. And that was why the name changed from keepers to attendants. So for much of the 19th century, the people that we now think of as mental health nurses were called attendants. And then towards the end of the 19th century, that began to change again, first for female staff who became known as nurses. And then later, as the 20th century began, men began to be known as nurses. Mm, yeah, quite a lot of change in terminology there. That's quite a common theme in nursing through history, isn't it? And mm. um, so who else was a part of this staffing team at the asylum and who was kind of ruling over them, I guess? Mm. There was a great wave of asylum building, really, um, in the in the mid 19th century. So really fuelled by the 1845 County Asylums Act, which made it mandatory for each area of the country to provide for what were then known as its pauper lunatics. And so these institutions and the smaller ones that were run by charities were usually 
kind of ruled over, I guess is the way to say it, by a doctor who was known as the medical superintendent, the, the early psychiatrists as we know them now. And were often just helped by one or two assistant medical officers. And then the day-to-day -day running of the asylum was really done by the attendants and by the, what were then known as the servants, people who, who worked alongside them. So in a way, the medical superintendents were the supreme power, if you like, over these large institutions. But of course, they were also answerable themselves to visiting committees made up of local councillors who were there to ensure that the asylums were run to an economical scale, but also were meant to oversee that the asylums were run with, um, with good standards. The problem was that often these institutions were founded by, you know, on local, what we now call rates, I guess. So there was always this problem of not having enough money. And then as these institutions got bigger and bigger, it was harder and harder, I would argue, to keep up this idea of kindness and moral management. And it became more and more a kind of not, well, I suppose a container system really, where lots and lots of people are in these large institutions with very few staff to work alongside them and look after them. Mm, yeah. So you've already touched on these asylums, particularly towards the end of the 19th century, being these very self-sufficient environments with these different services mm. and workshops and farms and um, cooking and all sorts of different skills and things that um, residents could, could work at while they were there. What was the nurse's role in those kind of the running of the asylum? I would say that they were absolutely crucial to the running of the asylum because they were the ones that did the day-to-day -day work. I've read reports of them being called the backbone of the asylum because they were the people that were with the patients all day and all night as well. But they would be expected to work extremely hard. So they wouldn't just do what we today all think of as maybe nursing duties, giving out medications, helping people wash, dress, encouraging them maybe to get out of bed if they're very depressed. They'd also be expected to work on the farms, in the workshops, and would often be recruited, the, the male staff I'm talking about now, for their sort of skills. So it may be that they were good at playing musical instruments and could run the asylum band. They may have been good at sports, so they could run the sports teams. They might have had a farming background. They may have been shoemakers. And on the female side, and, and it's important to say as well that asylums were strictly segregated on sex lines in, in the Victorian period. So the male staff, male nurses worked on the male side, females on the female side. And on the female side, there would be working in the laundry, work maybe sewing, um, cleaning. So the staff would really be working alongside the patients doing this to keep the asylum going quite a physical role isn't it really that makes me think of um mm. you know we've talked on this podcast before about of course how nursing is a predominantly female profession and always has been mm. there's always been a higher mm. proportion of men in mental health care hasn't mm -hmm. there and this is the same throughout history absolutely and learning disability nursing too because in the 19th century really that they were very much mixed up and it was only really towards the end of the 19th century that the distinction began to be made between learning disability and mental health. Um, but these groups of, of nurses, yes, were half and half really men and women. And that's why even today there are still many more men who work in these fields of nursing than in adult nursing, where I think it's about 10% of nurses are men. So quite a big difference. And that, that was that to do with the physicality of the role, that this idea that men would be able to contain uh, residents and patients mm -hmm. better? 
Certainly that was part of it. And and strength was something that was valued in mm. recruitment, it could be argued. Um, but also the fact that women simply were not allowed to work on the male side. You know, the, the men were looked after by men. And it was really only in the early 20th century that women began to cross what some writers have called the Great Divide and began to work on female right. wards. It was many, many years later that females worked on the male side. Although anecdotally, when mental health nurses' stories have been recorded, there were opportunities for them to meet and many romances mm -hmm. grew out of that and a great tradition of mental health nurses marrying each other. But technically, it was a great divide where the male and female side was strictly segregated. I suppose that ties into this idea that um, uh, generations of nurses and, and healthcare professionals would work in the same asylum, wouldn't they? And it would become their home. Absolutely. And there's a wonderful uh, book by Diana Jittings, which focuses on several asylum down in Essex. And she conveys this really well. She talks about keeping it in the family and, and this idea of the great community of nurses who married each other and then it passed on to their daughters, sons, then to their grandchildren, you know, whole generations of families who worked at the local asylums. Um, so yes, it was very much seen as a community and I think remembered with some nostalgia at the same time acknowledging that these places could be very brutal and custodial at the same time. So quite mixed um, narratives really about these large institutions. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about that because we we see these um, asylums, again, the bigger ones, that are the, the, the latter part of the 19th century, um, as pretty scary places, mm. very foreboding, huge institutions. Was it a scary place to be for residents or were staff able to make it comfortable, enjoyable and, and give them a, a quality of life there? I think it's hard to know in the 19th century because we, we don't have any oral histories of patients mm. or, or of nurses and really the only written records that exist are often written by the doctors mm. who ran the asylums. Um, into the 20th century, um, people like Diana Jittings have recorded the memories of patients and staff who worked in the long-term institutions and certainly there is very mixed stories. So for some people they were undoubtedly scary, brutal, frightening. And for other people, they were places of refuge, um, places of kindness, places where they felt at home. And of course, institutionalisation has to be taken into account that those places became familiar and that was the only place that many patients knew. But I think there's more of a mixed picture and it's more nuanced mm. than um, at first it can appear. Yeah. So was this, you know, thinking about this kind of community atmosphere and the different kinds of activities that nurses would get involved in, it reminds me of a story I heard once of a mental health nurse who started, I think it was in the 1950s, so as late as that, because he began at this institution because he could play in a brass band. Mm. So that was quite late. So mm. yeah, 90, 1950s, I'm pretty sure that was. Mm. And then he went on to have a long mental health career. Mm. So was this an attractive profession or, or field of nursing for people to go into? No, I don't think it was, because I think that it's always been stigmatised. It's been stigmatised for the people that are patients and that suffer from mental illness, but also the staff that work there, both doctors and nurses, have been stigmatised by their associations, it could be argued, mm. with these institutions. And that's why I think they became quite insular, because it was almost a, a hidden community or a closed community, um, sort of outside of the normal world, so to speak. And um, I did some research on nursing post-Second World War, when the NHS was setting up and I was particularly interested in mental health nursing and the massive shortages of staff and the efforts that the government made to try and recruit more staff and what became very clear was that the work was long, hard, um, badly paid, that 
people were often controlled in every aspect of their lives. And those were not just the patients, but these were the staff as well. So what did change with the NHS? You just touched on that Mm. now. How did these um, institutions uh, come to their end, I suppose? Well, in a sense, I don't think a lot did change really with the NHS in that they they came into a nationalised health system. And of course, the staff then became state employees. But actually, the conditions really did not change for a very long time. Um, And it was only really in the 1950s and 60s that the impetus for community care began to grow. Um, And there were lots of famous landmarks like Enoch Powell's Water Tower speech when he basically predicted the closure of these institutions and the feeling that patients don't necessarily need to be in hospital. Mm. Could they be cared for at home? Could they be looked after by community staff? And it was a very gradual movement. So really, it was from the 1950s and 60s right through to the 1990s when I was training as a mental health nurse that these institutions gradually began to shut down. That's a big change for where nursing happens, doesn't it, in the kind of environments Mm. that they're delivering care in. Very much so, yes, and a a huge move from institutional care to community Mm. care. Although, of course, that's very contentious and it has to be recognised that for many commentators, community care didn't happen or it didn't happen in the way that it should. So it could be argued that, you know, mental health care has always been under-resourced and kind of not valued as much maybe as some aspects of general health care. Um, and so that's always been an issue in terms of patients and what we would now call service users receiving appropriate and timely care. Mm. So I guess my final question is this kind of age-old debate around care or control. And mm. we've touched upon elements of both of those things. Mm. Um And it is age-old. Do you think it's something that we still are grappling with today? I think we are very much so because we still have patients who are detained in hospital sections under the Mental Health Act. And there may be good reasons why that happens, but that is can be can feel a very uncomfortable thing that people are being detained against their will. I think for nurses there is still this dilemma, dichotomy between care and control. And mm. there is still things that mental health nurses do that can feel very uncomfortable. And they might be done in the spirit of trying to get that patient better, but they can that could be forced injections for example and I think all mental health nurses have to square these things in their minds in terms of the ethical dilemmas that they encounter and obviously for some service users they might also feel that their experiences in mental health care have not been about care they've been about control so I think it's really important to recognise that all of these issues that I've been talking about historically are still very much a topical issues for today and need to be discussed and explored and recognised. Dr Claire Chatterton. You're listening to Pass Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing, Library and Archive. And you can hear more about mental health nursing, specifically deaf mental health nursing, in the previous episode of Pass Caring. Go to rcn.org.uk slash passcaring to find all previous episodes. I first came across the work of Sarah Carpenter through the Arts and Health Hub, a support network led by artists for artists who work in arts and health. That's exactly what Sarah does in her creative practice that explores mental well-being through her own experience, as well as collaborating with others. In 2020, Sarah created a public artwork called Hold, which was installed at the Maudsley Hospital in South London to celebrate the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife. I asked her to tell us about it. 
The way that I work is to draw people into the project, so in this case the nurses themselves, and kind of open up a dialogue and see what's important to them. And I work in lots of different mediums, so then it's a case of selecting really the right kind of um, materials for the location and to make the conversation that we're looking for. So in the end, it actually was a window vinyl treatment. So that was imagery like illustrations of nurses' hands and patients' hands across, right across the back window in the reception area. It was then a series of sculptures which were made from plaster that were cast from patient hands. And then there's a big prominent fireplace in there. So above the fireplace, we added photographs of important objects that we kind of discussed throughout the process. And the hands that are cast are actually holding those objects. So it's kind of like a detailed shot of the objects, which is larger. And the space is quite tricky because it's used by lots of different people and it has a very, very large wooden reception area which covers a lot of the space, um, which is why we decided to end up doing the window treatment so that people had that kind of impact when they walked in. And then hopefully it draws people into the smaller items if they're interested to go and take a little look. And you mentioned there that you're not, as an artist, you're not wedded to a particular material or medium is it fair to say then that the process the people you're working with that leads what method you then choose to go with for the for the final artwork yeah definitely exactly that so the process for me is just as important if not more important than the outcome Mm. I'm very interested in experimenting and opening up dialogue through using creative practices I use photography and screen printing I basically dabble in any medium and it's in a way I do that on purpose because I like for people to see that you can try new things and for me if I'm not learning I'm not really interested Um, yeah it's really about getting people involved and showing that everyone is creative and the most important tool that we have is creative thinking and to allow that to happen we need to kind of practice it as a skill as as you practice anything else. So yeah, the work is a lot about um, what I would call action research. So finding maybe problems and then looking at uh, possible solutions. So it's quite a positive um, outcome, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Art making as sort of production, but also learning along the way and then taking people with you on, on that journey too. So for this one, those people were nurses and you worked with them to develop it. So how did you work with them to come up with what the idea would be and you know be able to reflect their input and what nursing is in an artwork? I was really fortunate. Um, we put a call out across the whole of SLAM actually because another thing that I believe in is inclusivity and ensuring that everyone gets a chance to have their voice. So we did a call out across the whole trust. And from there, we had some nurses come forward that had the capacity um, to join us. And I did both individual sort of Zoom chats and group Zoom chats. So I asked questions about why people got into nursing. We talked about what they would like to see in their environment where they're working every day. And what we've begun to realise is that a lot of the focus 
for the nurses would be back on the patient. So we would Mm. be talking about what would you like to see in the space? And instead of it being about them, it would be about the patient. So it kind of brought together the whole project because we then realised that the way that we're held by nurses is a reciprocal thing. And nurses are humans as well. And that needs to be something that people are reminded of outside of their profession. And this idea of caring. So that's how we came up with the concept. But also we did have the opportunity. We were lucky between lockdowns that we could actually get together at Bethlehem Gallery. And then I I kind of, well, I wouldn't say led, facilitated a creative workshop where we were able to visualise some of the ideas. So I used collage and we talk about the colours and the shapes and the textures because the other thing to think about is that at the end of the day, it's important to get as many ideas feeding into the project as possible. But my kind of task was to facilitate and then to kind of curate almost and bring those ideas together in harmony and also kind of say there are certain restrictions over materials and things that we can Mm. and can't use in the hospital and the the budget (laughs) and all of that kind Mm. of thing so it was yeah it's a kind of um, a case of right we'll get together we'll workshop this let's think dream big that was the kind of approach which is very much how Bethlehem approached things dream big think about what might be possible and then we can work from there basically so what something i found about nurses is that they're very creative people but in ways where they are interested in creating artworks but also they have to be creative in their practice in their day-to-day in the way that they respond to problems and people and the things that they face did you find that kind of professional creativity coming through when you were working with them Definitely. So we actually spoke a lot about um, how nurses would be there 24-7 for families, for people, and they encountered all kinds of different challenges in in their role. And um, yeah, they almost have to be, have many, many identities. So yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of um, creative problem solving in, in what they do. And actually, as well as that, as you said, a lot of nurses are creative themselves. A lot of them find it useful to decompress. And actually, I think giving people the space to actually show that they are creative helps to helps people to see that they have another identity and that they are not just um, somebody who works in that industry. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. And this was right in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, I know we're still in things are still uncertain but this was right back at the beginning so you can imagine just how busy people were and also the other thing about capacity is you know mental capacity as well as physical capacity um, and energy etc so yeah I was really um, impressed by those that could manage to join of how much they gave to the project really. Did you find it helpful as something for you to to focus on during lockdowns? Yeah, definitely. I found that a lot of people that I was speaking to said that their creativity was kind of hindered um, by the pandemic. But I had the opposite reaction, to be honest. I had a feeling that although everything that was going on was a terrible situation to be in, 
with my practice, being kind of an outsider, if you like, as someone who's neurodivergent, I kind of felt a sense of people becoming more understanding about being at home, not necessarily being able to get out and see everybody all the time. So I actually felt this kind of, in the work that I do, normally I feel like I'm working alone, but I felt like I had lots of people who were beginning to understand what I was saying. I felt heard. Mm. So I made a lot of work, actually. And this was just one of the projects alongside my own work. But yes, obviously, making is a good form of distraction and self-soothing. So at times when I was anxious, that was really helpful. And also feeling connected, even if it was across Zoom. So I was making these new friends uh, with the nurses and also just having the gallery there. Um, it was like some kind of consistency throughout the pandemic, you know, touching base with people and talking about something that was fairly normal to me mm. in, in inverted commas. <laughs> so can you talk a bit more broadly then about some of your other projects where you've used art to explore experiences specifically of service users and why... Why art for you is a a helpful way of exploring those quite difficult topics? Yeah, so when I talk to people, a lot of the time people assume that the work that I do is art therapy or occupational therapy, but it's very different to that. Although art, as I say, can be very good for distraction and soothing people, the main aim is, is actually to talk to people and find out what their own experiences are. So I have done workshops on the mother and baby unit, for example, at Bethlehem, but that was facilitating workshops to go towards a final exhibition in the gallery. There was a practical element to it, but at the same time, it was just allowing that different kind of expression when mothers were perhaps feeling like their voices weren't being heard It was also kind of a breakaway for themselves to do something. And for others, they would bring their babies along and, you you know, have them as part of the process, which helped kind of build relationships and things like that. So that was um, printmaking. So they were able to kind of they could choose their subject, but some of them chose to kind of do their baby's feet or hands as a print. And that was just really beautiful. Yeah, that was opening up dialogue about objects and how how they might represent something and the change and transition into motherhood, basically. So how that Mm. kind of changes. But I would say a lot of the stuff that I've done, it has been kind of an open invitation to people. So it would be anybody that's interested in either creativity or mental health. So it's not always service user based inside a hospital it's actually a broader in the community. I suppose that's what I'm doing with Fourth Wall, opening up the doors and even just by having a sign outside that says all things art and mental health, you kind of have a variety of people coming in, either professionals or people who are struggling themselves with an illness or know somebody else who may be, or just have like generally an interest and want to know, you know, that's weird, what's that all about? So fourth wall in Folkestone, can anyone sort of pass it and pop in and say hello and get involved? Yeah, so it's quite a unique space because it's actually a retail unit. So it's a little shop and it's right in the creative quarter on the old high street. So in amongst other kind of um, independent shops and things. 
I opened the space because I had an open studio in a small room that I was hiring out in the same area. At the same time, I happened to do an exhibition at the Bethlehem Gallery that was more like a residency, so that was inviting people in as well. And I realised as well through my own mental health journey that I was struggling to talk about my work. That was because I saw it as me and mine and talking about myself. And when I was speaking to a counsellor, I suddenly realised, oh, actually, I say that I want to break down stigma and talk to people and open up conversations, and I find that really hard. So maybe it's actually important for the work. So in framing it that way, I kind of was like, oh, okay, I actually do, I can talk about this because it is important and it's not actually about my artwork at all, really. That's just kind of a starting point. This shop came up. I wasn't, I didn't have the plans. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just knew that having a massive window um, and being here would be important for to develop kind of the work that I was doing. So I've classed Fourth Wall as an open studio, informal gallery and research space. So it's kind of like reimagining what the art world could look like. And um, yes, I do have a lot of people come in to talk to me and a lot of people opening up about their own experience with mental health. But um, obviously the way that I frame everything is to say, I'm here to listen and I'm a facilitator, but I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counsellor. I, I kind of signpost people to different areas if I feel that they might, you know, that it might be a good fit for them. But in order to ensure that my own health is looked after, mm. I only operate open doors on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday between 11 and half five, which means that I have the rest of the week or I'm supposed to have the rest of the week, but I need to practice <laughs> this better to look after myself and I'm quite open and honest with people who come into the space and I might say to them, okay, I'm having quite a brain fog day or I'm low energy and I've actually got comfy chair here and I've got um, window seat and I've got benches oh, and I've got the kettle and I often make people a cup of tea. And so it's like this relaxed environment and I might just sit in the chair and be like, feel free to ask me questions or come and sit down and have a chat. Sarah Carpenter. And Sarah's open studio can be found on the Old High Street in Folkestone or follow her on Instagram at fourthwallfolkestone. I'll put a link to that in the podcast description along with some other links to things my guests have talked about today. Thanks for listening to me, Frances Reed, and the Past Caring podcast from the RCN Library and Archive. And a big thank you to my guests for sharing their knowledge and personal experience with us. You can find previous episodes at rcn.org.uk slash pastcaring or by just subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>